I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. And I'm joined today by Rob Schnabel, who is one of the great CBF staff working at the interface between agriculture and clean water. So, Rob, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Will. Okay. Well, I think our listeners are always interested. How long have you been at CBF? Where were you before? What's your training? Tell us in about 10 seconds sure, sure. <laughs> everything about you we'd like to know. Certainly. I've been with CBF for uh, 15 years, uh, and prior to CBF, I worked in the environmental consulting field. And uh, your expertise is in? My expertise uh, back in the consulting world was uh, stream restoration, but uh, these days I work primarily with uh, far farmers doing farm stewardship work throughout the Bay. And that's uh, a theme that keeps coming up with CBF, both before the litigation from the Farm Bureau, which happily uh, we, we keep celebrating, was not uh, a case that the Supreme Court decided to take. So the challenge to the Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint, the legal challenge is now done. It's over. It's finished. The blueprint can continue uh, to be implemented. Hallelujah is right. So it, this is especially timely because while CBF has always had a reputation of trying to work with farmers, to look for common ground and to get the best farming practices in place that make sense for the farmer and make sense for the clean water of the bay and its rivers and streams, it's even more important now. And so we're really glad to have you and to explore that a little bit. I also want to end with just a question or two about any ideas you might have for homeowners mm -hmm. and what homeowners can do on their properties uh, to help water quality as well. So certainly, don't certainly. let me forget, we're going to come back to that at the very end. Great. But first, agriculture. Tell us what you do and what you've um, experienced over the years, uh, your, your optimism and your frustration and any examples you might have. Now, that's a lot, so I'm, I'll sure, interrupt, but, I'll, but, but get us started. Certainly. Uh, historically, I guess, uh, since I've been with uh, the Bay Foundation for uh, 15 years, I used to uh, plant streamside forest buffers. So I'd work with a farmer, I'd help them fence their cattle out of the streams, and then I would uh, plant you know, a five acre uh, forest buffer along the stream to shade the stream and help filter any pollutants coming into the stream. But what's been great over the last 10 years, it seems like uh, I've been working more with farmers, helping them transition the type of farming they're doing um, through something called the Maryland Grazers Network that Chesapeake Bay Foundation helps lead. And it's helping a lot of farmers uh, convert their farms from uh, confinement operations where you're mainly growing corn or soybeans as animal feed to permanent pasture and grass. And that has humongous water quality benefits as well as economic benefits for the farmer. And so in turn, instead of having a five acre streamside forest buffer, we're converting some of these hundred acre farms to much better water quality practices um, and working with also a new generation of farmers, which is really exciting. I want to come to the grazers and talk sure. about that primarily, mm -hmm. but let's just touch on buffers for a second. I was up Sorry. in uh, Pennsylvania earlier this week. There's a lot of effort in trying to increase the buffers on Pennsylvania's rivers and streams. Mm -hmm. When we say, quote unquote, forested buffers, mm -hmm. people sometimes when they hear the word forest think of a mature stand of redwoods. Sure. Not necessarily that, right? No, certainly not. Um, and, and it's we call them riparian areas. So they're typically stream, which riparian just means streamside. So streamside forest buffers. And it's kind of the last defense of any kind of water working its way down to uh, our waterways and eventually 
uh, into the Chesapeake Bay. And what's great as part of uh, restoring these forest buffers is that it's something that volunteers can participate in. It's a great opportunity to get family groups, um, church groups, any kind of organizations out uh, to help do their part to save the bay. And we want to encourage people who are interested in volunteering to get a hold of us, come in through the website or call our central numbers, and we can put people to work planting trees and bushes and shrubs. And that's the, that was the question I was thinking about. We're not just talking about big, large, mature trees to make up a quote-unquote forested buffer, but it can be woody plants, they can be native, they're always native vegetation. I'm they're sure. always native, and we always plant uh, both trees and shrubs that like to be in these streamside riparian corridor areas. And we plant uh, all fall and spring, so typically starting October through the middle of November, as well as all of April through half mm -hmm. of May, these opportunities are available. And what's uh, extra special is that a lot of the plants actually come from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Claggett Farm. We get volunteers out there to pot up saplings. Um, we grow them out in three-gallon containers for a year. And then the following season, we get them out to our restoration site. So they're very manageable. A three-gallon container size uh, would be like a three- or four-foot-tall tree. It's very easy for volunteers and family groups to that's, plant, that's plant that size. So you're talking about uh, our operation is working from the seed to the mature tree and the forest buffer. Exactly, exactly, yep. <laughs> That's fabulous. Okay, so give us some thoughts about, give us your um, experience with the Grazers Network and the concept of taking a 100-acre farm and bringing it into something that the farmer, uh, the environmentalist, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation can all be very proud of. Certainly. Well, uh, the Grazers Network started in, in 2008, and it's a group of, uh, you know, it's led by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, but it has the University of Maryland Extension as part of it, uh, government agencies since, uh, like the Natural Resource Conservation Service as part of it. But uh, it's a group, a network that provides economic uh, incentives uh, and help to help a farmer figure out the most uh, profit, profitable way to farm. Uh, as well as it has a marketing side to it as well. We have a marketing specialist that helps the farmer direct market to consumers because that's a way that a farmer can reap the, the best um, value for what they're producing. And then my component of the Grazers Network is to help provide a, a government cost share or to help pay for so that some of the grazing infrastructure costs, things like uh, uh, fencing, uh, water troughs, streamside uh, crossings to get animals from pasture to barnyard, um, also, uh, the pasture establishment, so converting a cornfield to permanent pasture to get that permanent cover. But the real highlight of the whole network is having a farmer mentor work one-on-one -on -one with the, the adopter, the grazing adopter that wants to learn um, how to graze. We have a lot of acres throughout the Bay Watershed that historically were dairy farms. And as uh, some of those dairy farms went out of business in the 80s and 90s, have been put into corn and soybean and haven't had animals on the farm for a long time. And as we have uh, reached an aging population uh, throughout the Bay, uh, it, it's relatively easy to convert those lands that are now just growing animal feed on them and do not have any animals on them to uh, get younger farmers on that land. You don't necessarily need massive manure storage structures or uh, super expensive equipment to grow corn and harvest corn and apply the manure. You get, let the animals do a majority of the work 
um, by, by harvesting their own feed, by eating the pasture, and by applying their own waste to help fertilize the fields. The fencing costs and the pasture establishment costs are relatively small compared to buying heavy equipment and massive storage structures. So it's, it's a great uh, way for a beginner farmer to get established. So I, I'm a very simple uh, concept kind of guy. Yep. So uh, what I hear you saying, mm -hmm. tell me if I'm wrong, is that rather than growing corn, fertilizing it, worrying about all the things that relate to the, the, the associated with growing corn, harvesting it and then feeding it to the cattle, nature can grow its own grass in the field, the cattle can graze on the field, and you're greatly simplifying the whole process. Exactly, much more working kind of an ecologically based system, which is the way that it used to be. Um, so it's much more efficient to, to farm in that manner. And, and in terms of um, natural beauty of the farmland, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than seeing cattle grazing in the field. Yep, exactly. It's, it's a gorgeous sight that people have seen throughout the Bay. But the other key as well is that in terms of a water quality perspective is a lot of these cornfield lands, uh, there's a good bit of erosion issues that you have with growing corn uh, as feed for the animals. Corn is a very leaky crop. Right. It can only absorb 50% of whatever fertilizer you're applying to it. Plus, a lot of these farm fields have lost a lot of their organic matter. Um, and um, you know, a lot of the farm fields that I work on that are cornfields that we're converting, they only have, say, a 1% organic matter, but a lot of pastures have a 5% organic matter. And the importance of that is, of throwing a few numbers at you, mm -hmm. but for every 1% increase in organic matter, an acre of land can hold 26,000, I'm sorry, yeah, 26,000 gallons of water per acre. So if we can Wait take a now say that again, that's slow. fascinating. Yep, that is. So for every one percent increase in organic matter in the soil, in the soil, right, um, an acre of land can hold an additional twenty-six thousand gallons of water. So you're basically recreating the sponge in the soil by going back to a pasture-based system. That's fabulous. That's a fabulous statistic that I'm going to try to memorize and use because Great. it's such a it's such a win-win-win. It is. And not only is the field holding more water, it's better for the crop, better for the animal, yep. but that water isn't running off, right, causing all the problems of polluted runoff. Exactly. Polluted runoff and flooding events, you think of all that happen. A lot of these watersheds that have the biggest water quality issues uh, also have big flooding issues as well because they've lost the organic matter in the soil. Now, two, two things. I, I want to ask you for an example, sure. uh, maybe a, a, a specific farm or farmer you've worked with. Sure. So you can think about that. But um, the money that this that, that is, is needed to make the transition or to begin this, you talked mm -hmm. about cost share funding. Certainly. So federal and com federal money coming out of USDA, I yes. imagine, mm -hmm. and some state cost share monies. Exactly. Any estimate, and I know it's different from farm to farm, but as to what percent of the costs can be covered by cost share? Uh, ballpark 90%, a very large really? percent, whether it's through the, the Farm Bureau funding through that the Natural Resource Conservation Service provides money. Um, through, and then also the state of, I work mostly in Maryland, so uh, the Maryland uh, Agriculture Cost Share Program will also pay a lot of these costs. And what's uh, exciting as well is that the Bay Foundation is very involved as well in getting grants sometimes to offset costs to pay 100% of these costs as that's well. That's called our so-called buffer bonus for buffers, and exactly. I imagine that's true also, where we've raised private money to actually even further incentivize good practices to help clean water and save the exactly, bed. Exactly, exactly. Now, you've been talking about Maryland. You're based in Maryland. CBF 
has operations in Virginia and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. They're Rob Schnabels in those states as well. Just to let our listeners know, Certainly. while you're discussing Maryland, we're doing the same sorts of things in Virginia and Pennsylvania as well. We are, yes, and, and I think the most uh, one of the most gratifying partnerships and projects I've worked on was actually a lot of the work out in, say, in the Hagerstown area, uh, the Mennonite community, um, working in both uh, Franklin County, Pennsylvania, and Washington County, Maryland, where we helped uh, restore a good bit of Antietam Creek, which, uh, Antietam, which throws the Antietam Battlefield before it flows into the Potomac River. Um, but what was neat about that partnership working across state lines is that we helped restore a trout stream that was not a naturally reproducing trout stream to a naturally reproducing trout stream by fencing cattle out, by getting shade uh, and planting trees, and getting shade cover over these cold water streams, shading them so that they can stay uh, cold enough water quality wise so that that would actually support trout habitat. A trout stream that had been so degraded there were no longer trout naturally reproducing. The work we did with our colleagues and partners, I'm sure, mm -hmm. brought the trout back, reduced water pollution, improved the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay. Yes, How exactly. cool is that? It's pretty darn cool. It's very rare that um, the fisheries folks uh, with, with the state agencies were very excited that we were able to do that. You go to bed happy every night, I bet you, I or do. most nights at least. I, I do, I do, certainly. <laughs> and certainly. then wake up in the morning. Can you give us an example? Tell us about a farm or a farmer that you've worked with that might be of special interest. I think people love stories. There, there are many over the last 15 years, but I, we're working with one right now that I'm most excited about. It's, it's a young beginner farmer. Um, that he, it's about a 150-acre farm. Uh, the farm had been a dairy in, in the 80s um, and uh, had gone out of business in the 80s. Uh, the children of the farmer did not want a farm, did not see it as profitable, left the farm. And now the farm has been bought by the grandchildren hmm. of, of the initial farmer. And they're in the process of converting the cornfields to pasture. Uh, they're growing organic vegetables. They're also doing pasture poultry. Um, it's uh, actually the name of the farm is Gravel Springs Farm, and I'm uh, especially excited because uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation is working with them to deliver uh, community-supported agriculture shares to the Bay Foundation uh, uh, office in Annapolis uh, that folks in the community can come and pick up their share, weekly shares and be part of this farmer. I think it's absolutely critical that we start to work with some of these younger beginner farmers because we have, uh, in Maryland, we've got over 500,000 acres that is owned by 69-year-old and older farmers. And over the next 10 years, this land is going to transition, whether it gets developed um, or not. Um, it's critical that we start to work with these farmers to help them become more profitable. In the Bay Watershed as a whole, there's 4 million acres of agriculture land that is owned by 69-year-old and older um, population. So we need to really help with this transition. It's a huge opportunity for water quality um, in the Bay, and we need to take advantage of it. So that's uh, an amazing statistic. How many? Four million acres? Million acres, acres. yep. In and, Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania. Yep. And, and we know that agriculture, when it's done well, is really one of the best active uses of the land of all the different types. Certainly. I mean, certainly, completely unused forest land would be the best. But right. in terms of active use of the land, so it's so important to keep agriculture profitable, to keep farmers farming to generation to generation, and to help work with all of them to do the best possible thing for the benefit of the bay and the rivers and streams. Certainly, yes. That's inspiring. Yes. And the community-supported agriculture 
is a way for people to invest in a farm, to get a share of the farm's benefits on a weekly basis. Just give us another sentence or two about a CSA. Sure. Um, well, the econo- I'd like to highlight the economics of it. Basically, when you go to a grocery store and spend a dollar, only 30, per- 30 cents of that dollar stays in the neighborhood. When you uh, purchase locally from a local farm, every dollar you spend gets multiplied two to three times to really help the local economy. So it's really to keep your money in the community and multiply it. And it's critical. Uh, it helps farmers as well economically by going straight to them. It kind of cuts out the middle people. They don't have to. They don't have uh, so much of their profits go go to the grocery store or go to the transport or go to the packaging of their goods. Um, it's really important that the farmer maintain a higher uh, amount of the share of the dollar. And I imagine um, if our listeners Google community-supported agriculture, they could find a CSA close to where they are. Certainly. And those who want to be involved uh, in a CSA that CBF is working with mm-hmm. um, on our website or calling the office and getting information? Certainly. Yeah, CBF has our own uh, uh, CSA at Claggett Farm. Um, and uh, then we'll also be hosting Gravel Springs Farm delivering here, but also CBF helps run uh, the Chesapeake Buy Fresh Buy Local group as well, and we have a listing of CSAs throughout Maryland. On our website? On our website, yes. Great, great. Well, thank you, Rob. Now, I said I want to come back to the homeowner. Certainly. Those farmers who may just have an acre or half acre or four or five acres. Certainly. What's your advice for them? Uh, well, the vegetable farming would be wonderful, but at least if they can do some bay-friendly type landscaping, reduce the amount of mowing maintenance that they're doing on the lawn by planting native plants would be ideal. Native plants. Native That's plants. really key. That's the less key. Less water, less fertilizer, less... All the above. Le- less maintenance, less water, less fertilizer. And ideally, I know what I have in, in my farm in town. I live in an urban area, but I've got a rain barrel and I take water and water my plants. I've got a butterfly garden um, and lots of native shrubs. And then I've got a very tiny garden, but it's uh, and it's not, you know, I'm not growing that much food out of it, but it's extremely satisfying to grow a little bit of your own food. Very good. Rob Schnabel. Thank you very much. This has been a real education for me, and I hope for our listeners. People can go on our website, look for information. In Virginia, they can call the Richmond or Hampton Roads offices for more information. In Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg office, and anyone can call here to headquarters in Annapolis or go on our website. And if they want to volunteer in any of those states, call the office, go on the website, look for opportunities. We can put people to work. Yes, thank you for having me. All right. This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Thanks for joining us. And remember to tune in to our podcast every two weeks and go to our website, cbf.org, for more information. 